Good morning, good people, and welcome to the Pool Proof Wisdom Podcast. Today's guest, Damon Jones, accomplished something historical when he was the first black man and person of color to be ranked number one on industry publication PR Week's Power List. It was one of those moments that makes me sit up, nod knowingly to myself, and smile. What it wasn't is a surprise. Damon is someone I've been aware of for some time because as a practitioner and advocate for diversity in my profession, which still has pitiful evidence of any commitment to diversity and inclusion, it's not hard to know the people who are creating inroads, and Damon is one of those people. And he's been at the top of his game for quite some time now. As Chief Communications Officer for Procter & Gamble, a company with which he's been since 1997, Damon arrived in the C-suite after earning his way there, having held a variety of positions with the company prior to being named Chief Communications Officer in 2020. And over the course of those years, he ensured that his passion for community engagement infused his counsel and defined his work across the roles he held with the company. He now leads efforts to help ensure Procter & Gamble is and is recognized as a force for good and a force for growth. He leads a consumer-centric communications ecosystem and an equality-focused citizenship agenda that span more than 180 countries. Procter & Gamble and Jones have been well-recognized within the consumer products industry and beyond for their leadership in creative, advocacy-based campaigns that inspire dialogue and enable collective action in advancing equality for women, people of color, members of the LGBTQ community, and other underrepresented groups. These programs have been broadly recognized for their creativity, inspiration, and impact, including multiple Silver Anvils, Cannes Lions, and Primetime Commercial Emmy Awards and other nominations. If you've applauded Procter & Gamble's Not the First campaign, promoting gender equality, The Choice, which encourages individuals to take action to create a world free of racial injustice, or First Shave, which shows how the company's support of LGBTQ inclusion exists. If you've been doing that, you've also been appreciating just some of the work Damon and his team are responsible for. That team, a 500-person strong global communication discipline led by Jones, advances Procter & Gamble's growth strategy while building and protecting the image and reputation of the world's largest consumer goods company and its portfolio of nearly 100 industry-leading brands. The discipline includes influencer marketing, brand and corporate communications, digital and social media, stakeholder engagement, issues, advocacy, and crisis management. He's a very busy man who nonetheless makes time to share his journey with others. A trusted advisor to the C-suite, Jones has a proven track record of leveraging reputation and relationships to drive brand and business success. Please join me in welcoming a leader and inspirational colleague who I'm proud to say I've witnessed his ascent, as well as how he's used his platform to affect change. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Damon Jones. Welcome to the Pool Proof Wisdom Podcast. So glad to have you join us today. I came to know you primarily because I'm a subscriber to PR Week, and I always saw your pictures and the updates on things that you were doing. And then, of course, the big issue 
the big exciting news that happened last year when you did something that was unusual. You became the first black man, first person of color to actually lead the list of the most powerful people in our industry as defined by PR Week. And I set up and I took notice and did a little dancing jig, if you can imagine, because I'd been waiting for years to see something like that. And I couldn't be prouder of you if I actually had you as a best friend, because what you did was something that was just amazing to me. And since then, not only have you, of course, continued to live up to that role, but the things you are doing are just intriguing. Tell me a bit about your reaction to that. And were you expecting it? Did you know it was going to happen? How did you feel about taking on that particular responsibility of being in that particular role? Well, let's, uh, I'll first say it's great to, great to be with you uh, and, and love to be in great conversation with, with great people. You know, it, it was interesting enough because um, I had been in talks with the PR Week team for a while about a profile that they had wanted um, to do. Uh, and I wasn't, and I'm not a traditional fan of a lot of profile stories. So I kind of kept putting them off and they wound up uh, kind of cornering me with my with my assistant to say, we really need him to do this. So when I found out the news, I was actually surprised because I did not know um, it was coming. Um, but at the end of the day, it felt great. Recognition always feels great when it comes from people that have insight into what you do, what it takes, and you know, really the trials and tribulations of what we do in our industry. A lot of times people see us as the mouthpieces for our organizations, be that a corporation or an NGO or whoever it might be, but also underappreciate the heavy lifting that it takes to both do the right thing as well as show up in the right way. So I was happy um, that as part of this, that frankly, they're recognizing the work. Uh, and that's not just the work that I do, it's the work of a, of a great team um, and a company that gives me a platform to advance um, what we think is, is really good work and meaningful work uh, and work that will live on for many generations. So I, I'm excited. Like I said, it's a platform for us to continue to push forward many of the important issues that frankly need to be pushed forward, not only in our industry uh, and in our country, but in our world. Did you feel any accompanying pressure with that? Because then everyone looks at you and you become the symbol of what it's supposed to be. How did you react to that? Th there is always that pressure, right? Okay, now that you do this, people are going to go look back and say, well, you know, frankly, in a year where any organization is dealing, many organizations are dealing with, you know, recognizing how inclusive they have or have not been you know, there was a reaction like, okay, is this, is this really my time or is this, you know, convenient um, for us to be finding, you know, people of color and bringing them forward. And, you know, I, I've known Steve Barrett for many while for a long time and I've known uh, the, the team there, but, you know, again, I comes it comes back down to the work and I look at it as an opportunity for a platform. You know, what are the conversations that frankly, I wasn't happening uh, that weren't happening in the past couple of years that are happening now and how can we use this as an opportunity to bring those to the forefront? There are many strong leaders in our industry, industries, of, uh, leaders of color, Charlene Wheelis, uh, Tarah Neptune, um, you know, Michael Sneed at J&J. So there are other people that have been doing the heavy lifting for a while. Um, and so this is, you know, a, a continuation in how I stand on many of their shoulders. Um, but really, like I said, taking the platform to the next level. So I don't look back, I look forward and I say, hey, um, you know, I'm, I'm here, uh, I'm in the room, I have the seat, and, and right now I'm at the head of the table, so let's make the most of it. 
Yeah. You didn't just get here because someone, you know, waved the magic wand and made it possible, though. Let's talk a little bit about your work leading up to not only that recognition, but how you got to this role at Procter & Gamble in the first place. Let's talk a little bit about your professional history. Yeah, I um, graduated from Xavier University in Ohio with a degree in journalism about 24 years ago and um, was headed into a uh, career in uh, radio news, I thought at the time, and then decided to stick around Cincinnati where P&G was located. I had some friends who were uh, a year younger than I was in college and I said, you know, we'll, we'll hang out, we'll, we'll keep the gang together. And 24, year le 24 years later, here I am. Um, and it, it's been um, a, a wonderful ride because I feel like I've been constantly challenged with uh, roles of increasing responsibility, not just from a, you know, how big is your budget and how many people work for you standpoint, but in the types of challenges and the types of work um, that I've been able to do, been able to work uh, in Asia, uh, been able to work in Europe, um, lived in several different cities here in the U.S. and in 2008, had the wonderful opportunity to be the communications director for the Democratic National Convention, Convention which was uh, then Senator Obama's, you know, kind of coming out party, if you will. Um, and so I've always tried to look at what were the experiences that best positioned me for what's next. And sometimes you can see around those corners. And, and frankly, sometimes you're just blessed to be in the right place at the right time, but trying to be prepared. So when the phone call came, um, you know, I was ready to answer and ready to answer in a credible way. But really, it's just, you know, I define myself as an experience junkie, whether that's in my personal life uh, or whether that's in my professional life looking for new ways to bring people together to have conversations um, and, and, you know, have candid conversations about the things that are working and the things that aren't. And, and that's really how I fell into the advocacy space at Procter & Gamble. Um, it, it wasn't uh, something that I had always had an aspiration to do. Um, but growing up, I, I always had a little bit of a big mouth. So if you're going to ask me my opinion, um, you better be ready for the answer. And when, you know, we started having really deep issues and deep conversations about issues that were impacting the company, you know, I spoke up and I said, hey, I think that there's a huge opportunity for us to step up in ways that we haven't. Um, and they basically said, okay, put up or shut up. You want to lead the work? And I said, yes, and, and, and have enjoyed every moment of that journey. Yeah. So we're coming up a few days past the uh, anniversary of the um, murder of George Floyd. And I actually did an interview with George Floyd's uncle on this podcast, and we talked a lot about that. You mentioned advocacy. As you find yourself in this space a year later, and you think about the work you've done, and there's been so many iconic pieces. I mean, I knew about the talk and the choice long before I knew that you and the team were behind it. As you look ahead to what advocacy means for Procter & Gamble, and by default, what that means for you in terms of the role you inhabit right now, what do you see going forward? I think of advocacy as um, values in action, right? And, and that means using your voice, but frankly, it means using all of your available resources uh, to make positive change, right? And so when I look at um, how uh, the conversations are happening a year later, where are we on the big systemic issues, be it social justice issues, be it police reform, be it economic inclusion, you go down all of the, the, the things that have been unveiled in the pandemic um, that are big cracks. You know, you, you, you've heard um, the fact that when, uh, you know, when, when, when the world catches a cold, Black people catch pneumonia, right? And, mm. and I think we saw that here with what was happening with COVID. So 
it's been an opportunity for, um, I think, a lot of continued important discussions. Um, but what I really hope the discussion that we're having um, this time next year, as we are having this time this year, is not just how much money has corporate America thrown at NGOs so that they can look and say that they've said something, but frankly, are they having the conversations on how their actions day in and day out are addressing the systemic inequalities that continue to persist and affect us, right? And, and so um, I, I really am hoping in leaning into the moment to, to have um, the, the, the big conversations, the deep conversations to say what really needs to be different and how do we find ourselves here? Um, and how do we ensure that we, we just don't stay here, right? Because I think mm -hmm. there's been a, a ton of good action, but a ton of performative action as well, right? And so the conversations and recognizing, frankly, um, where people of color have positions of influence in institutions and in organizations, this is a really important moment for us to really be elevating right now and having the tough conversations and not being shy about the role of our organizations to step forward and, and make a meaningful impact. So when I think about advocacy, yes, there are the things that we know we need to do, but there are the things that other people don't know that they need to do. And we need to be having both of those conversations. That's really interesting to me because, you know, we can talk about it in terms of people of color, but the thing that's so interesting about Procter & Gamble is literally there is no limitation. You advocate for everybody, every level, every issue. That takes a lot of courage. Now, we obviously know that there are people who, of course, believe that businesses should keep their nose out of such business, <laughs> right? But except when it comes to political donations, they have a different perspective then. What does it take on a day-to-day -day basis for you, because I think this differs for a lot of company, to continually invest in finding out what needs to be addressed so that you are ahead of the curve? So often, Damon, you know, and I actually had a comment that was in PR Week that when everything happened a year ago and all of a sudden all of these corporations started bandwagoning, oh, we're doing this and, you know, inclusiveness and, you know, <laughs> diversity, all of a sudden it became exciting for them to do it. But what you're talking about is sustainability and you've been here for the long haul, Procter & Gamble as well, doing the work. What is necessary so that we can make sure that corporations like yours are able to have a sustainable agenda that continually allows them to engage in this type of activity? I think at the core, Charles, it is being very clear on the why. Why do you believe this? Why do you do what you do? For us, um, we serve 5 billion consumers around the world. Every color, every creed, every shape, every age, every religion, every X, Y, and Z. And those people want to see themselves centered in the conversation. And we hadn't been doing that for a long time. When we think about advertising and advertising's ability, I mean, P&G is one of the, the world's largest advertisers, right? And when we, we oftentimes talk about, you know, the, the lyrics and music or, or the images we see on TV, well, advertising can be just a positive force as well in helping how communities see themselves and helping shape how they see each other, right? So I think once you deeply understand that, um, and, and I'm, I'm blessed to be able to work with, um, you know, a CMO and Mark Pritchard who gets it, a CEO and David Taylor who gets it, you recognize that it's gotta go deeper um, than just a program, or it's gotta go deeper than just a single department. So when we see it as fundamental to how we serve consumers, that yes, we serve them with great products to keep the clothes clean and all those other things, but we have to serve them by communicating to them in ways that are meaningful and relevant. Um, and that 
in ways that the conversations go beyond what can you do for me when it comes to a transaction. So we, we think about it as fundamentally related to the conversations that we are having with billions of people around the world every single day and wanting to be true and authentic in those conversations. Mm-hmm. So we start with ensuring that all people are positively and accurately reflected um, in the fullness of their humanity, right? And when you talk to people and, and, and talk to them about the fullness of their humanity, they don't compartmentalize. One day I'm black, one minute I'm gay. It, it, it doesn't work, right? You, you bring your whole self to work if you want to use that term, right? So once you get that, you, you then begin to look at the, the pieces of the puzzle in a very different way. So that is what that realization is at the core of what we do that 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 makes this you know a movement, not a moment, if you want to want to use that term. I think the second thing there is it really showcases the importance of having the deep conversations within your own walls, because until you have those conversations within your own walls, you can't have them with the consumers that we serve. And that means being really clear about what's working, what's not, who's in the room and who's not, where is privilege extended and where it's not. So that understanding of the why, willingness to call a spade a spade about what's working or what's not, but but that sustaining it and making it the job of the many people in an organization and not the job of a few is what really helps, right? I mean, I stand here and yes, I'm leading big components of our advocacy portfolio, but we've got dozens of people who get it, right? And they are the people that are day in, day out, making all of the individual decisions that say, hey, is this the right thing to do? Um, Are we being inclusive? Not just in the people in front of the camera, but the people behind the camera. That's when you get to real systemic change. Does that by default and by definition, therefore, make Damon Jones an activist or is Damon Jones just a human being in a human company trying to be fair minded and equitable with other human beings? How would you define it? You know, I've never been good with labels. Right. So Mm -hmm. I'm not going to try right now. Um, But I do, um, you know, wear that badge of honor. You want to call me an advocate, an activist, uh, an ally. I think a lot of the work that I do for me um, and, and when the work becomes personal is I try to move people further along a spectrum. If you are aware of an issue, um, you know, I want you to become an ally. If you are an ally, I want you to become an advocate. If you're an advocate, I want you to become an activist. So pick your A word, but I think <laughs> it's it's a little bit of know better and do better, right? right. And, and one of the things that that I've always learned is that everyone can do something. Right. My grandmother growing up in Detroit was the church mother. Right. And, you know, and people would always ask, you know, what can I do to help? And, and one of the things she taught me is when somebody asks you, can they help you find ways to put their hands into motion? Right. Mm. And so I, I've carried that through a lot of the work, both that I've done professionally as well as I do personally. When people say, hey, I'm really passionate. What can I do? I have an answer for them. Right. Because, you know, many hands make like work. Uh, and so I, I just believe that. Um, you know, everyone can do something. Um, everyone can't do the same thing. And that's the beauty of the diversity of our world. But everybody has got to do something um, if it's important to you. Otherwise, it's, it's empty words. So, um, you know, my job is to continue to push to do what I can from the position of um, privilege and influence where I'm at, um, but also to help people reflect on what they can do where they're at, because you don't have to be at um, a large multinational advertiser 
to change the way people think about you. When you hear something um, or when you see something, you say something, right? And, and those are the little things that can make it. And I look at, I look at the, um, the gay rights movement in the US and one of the things that has really pushed that movement forward is their ability to humanize what it means to be a member, member of the LGBTQ plus spectrum, right? And frankly, when people knew that these weren't issues that were otherized and people hundreds of miles away, when they said, wait a minute, that's my cousin, that's my son, that's my daughter, that's, you know, that's Joe in the mailroom or whoever it might be, then you take the sting out of these becoming quote unquote political issues and they become very human issues, right? And so to your point, when you can humanize the impact of bias or racism or, or any of the phobias, um, then I think you can really open up the door to progress. Mm. I don't want you to be a sociologist, of course, but I'm going to ask you this question anyway, which is, you know, as you look at the temper of the country right now and the things that we're seeing going on at the, you know, levels of people's interactions with one another, this level of frustration, I'll call it in part, anger, hypocrisy that you see going on. We know that there were some sources, and we will call that they who will not be named. <laughs> but as we look ahead, now we have a different presidency. We have a different administration. But we still have similar problems to what we had you know, just months ago. How do we somehow, using that approach that you identified, each person wherever they are doing whatever they can, how do we encourage people to engage in, I'll refer to one of your wonderful uh, placements, conversations about the things that matter most, because those vary for each people, but we're tuning out, hearing each other. How do we get there? Yeah, the the, the echo chambers are real, um, and, and our problems didn't start in the uh, fall of 2016, and they didn't end uh, in the fall of 2020. And I think we just need to start there and, and make sure that we are um, all equally shouldering the burden to have those conversations today, right? Because part of what I think leads to that is, you know, people are searching for identity and people are searching to be heard. Um, and one of the things, whether, you know, where, wherever you're at on the political spectrum and, um, you know, there, there was a, 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 what I would argue as a positive effect in um, 2008 when we elected Barack Obama um, and probably a not so positive effect, personally speaking, when we elected um, he, he who shall not be named in, in 2016. But both of them brought people into the conversation who did not feel that they were a part of the conversation before, right? And that is a lesson that I think we should learn from uh, President Obama. That's a lesson that we should have, would learn from President Trump, um, is when you have people who do not feel that they are a part of the conversation they will act up and act out in some way, right? Yes. Uh, and they will become more susceptible to misinformation, to othering people who are different than them, um, and to not believing that the people who see the world differently than they do can have some common ground to share their best interests, right? And so th that to me is where you know, e even in the the heat of the discussions, and I'm you know I'm fortunate everybody knows where I stand on the issues. But when you can sit down and have some reasonable conversations with people who see the world um, differently and we can get beyond, well, you know, the, the all Democrats, this, the all Republicans, this, or the all X, Y, Z, whoever it is, and get to, hey, let me talk to you about me and my life and my life experiences as a black man in America. 
And when I can tell you about being stopped by the police, having a gun pulled, whatever these experiences are, it, it becomes less of a democratic or a Republican issue. It becomes a human issue and people not wanting to feel the pain that Damon has experienced in his life, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, trying to find healthy doses of empathy um, is I think a tremendous tool and impact that, that again, we can all have, but that's gotta require us to lean in, right? And, and there are times, and you know, we, we've been there over the past year where you feel like having that conversation, there's times when it's like, you know, not today, right? You know, mm -hmm. I can't carry this burden today, but, but being willing to find um, that space to have that conversation and being willing to extend human grace to one another um, to, to lean in. I think that's the way you eventually, you know, open hearts and change minds. Mm. You know, I've in reading your bio, I understood, of course, that your mom had a great deal of influence on you earlier about getting active and participative in terms of speaking up. So the first part of your question is going to be, tell me about that. I subscribe to the same belief. <laughs> uh, that's who got me involved. But the second part is, in matters of what you've learned and how you were motivated in that way, how faith plays a role in terms of how you approach, obviously, how you do your job. Because those two influences alone, I think, have a lot to do with what we see you in terms of product output when it comes to the work you do. Yeah, from a from a family standpoint, um, I grew up in Detroit. Um, both my parents, um, you know, started off in the automotive industry, um, and my dad was in management. My mother was on the line, right? And so you can imagine the conversations that that were had in there about you know what the union was or was not, and and, and what you know the foreman you know was or was not. But what it what I learned from her example is there are times when you need to put your head down and do the work, right? And when you are focused on doing the work, um, only after you've done that, can you focus on telling other people what to do, right? And, and sometimes just the, the quiet strength that it takes to be vocal or the quiet strength that it takes to be silent and recognizing that both of those require strength um, and, and neither of those in and of themselves are our weakness. When there was a lot of pushback, I want to call it pushback, when there was a lot of discussion about sexual harassment um, in the late 90s and early 2000s, um, you know, I, I saw her get active and, and, you know, no means no, right? And talking about it in an industry where, you know, frankly, you know, moving up from the South, people are just happy to have jobs and you put your head down and you do what you got to do. But seeing the risk of having those conversations at a time when it was not convenient, um, you know, that, 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 that just stood out as a very powerful example of, yes, there's times to, when you need to be quiet, but there's, yes, sometimes when your voice can make a difference, right? And seeing her and, and, and all the people back in Local 140, because they, they stood in solidarity with each other through some very challenging times as, as they dealt with the issues that they needed to deal with in their workplace. And you say, you know what, if, if they can deal with that, then certainly I can deal with some of the stuff that, that I can deal with, right? Um, and so for me, it's just always about trying to think through what matters at this moment um, and, and understanding that that is relative. Um, but again, going back to everybody can do something. And sometimes, you know, you need to walk the picket line with a sign. Sometimes you just need to tell people 
the truth when they ask you a question and you need to, to, to acknowledge that question unapologetically. So mm -hmm. I, I just think, you know, looking at that and, and seeing the examples and, and having those conversations and, and asking why. Um, and I was always that kid as a, as a child that was saying, well, why? And, and why, why? So you understand that those are deliberate choices. Um, uh, and that's where I think we can just all, you know, take lessons from those who, who come before us, whether that is in our family, in our workplace, in our, in our churches or wherever it might be. I think, you know, what I say is later on, um, you know, faith has played a role because there are many lonely moments in leadership, right? There are times when you have to have conversations and you don't know how people are going to react. Um, but the confidence required to have them um, and wherever your source of confidence is, I encourage people to lean in and find that source of confidence. Um, for me, you know, my faith is one source of confidence, right? I don't believe he's not gonna put more on me than I can handle, right? So it, it lets me know that I, I need to go ahead and, and speak up and and hell, I'm, I'm halfway decent at my job. And so if Proctor doesn't want me to do this, then, then I'll go find a job somewhere else. And I take that entrepreneurial spirit through what I do. But I think people value that point of view because when people ask you a question, most of the times they generally do want to know what you have to say. And as we think about, you know, frankly, you know, our roles as communications professionals, our counsel is all that we have. Don't nobody in that company have to do a doggone thing I say, right? I don't have responsibility for the PL or anything, but my value comes from the fact that they want me in the room when the issues are being discussed and they want my point of view to help them navigate um, the ups, downs, and arounds of those decisions. And so unless I am telling the truth in a way that brings data and brings perspective and brings lived experience to the, to the table, um, then I am very easily replaceable. Um, there are people out there that have better data or perhaps have different perspective, but it's the combination of all of that and the confidence to say those things and to do those things unapologetically, I think that have been instrumental in my career. So faith is my source of confidence. I encourage people to find whatever that source of confidence is. Um, but you, you've got to walk in your own truth in that regard. Mm, fantastic. That's, that's a great question and a great answer. So thank you for that. Hey, Damon, um, you mentioned something I'm going to pick up on. A lot of people are focused on getting where you are, getting in that C-suite. But what you just spoke about is about staying there, having staying power. How do you keep yourself engaged so that you consistently can learn and add on to the existing many levels of knowledge you already possess so that it's not so much about staying relevant, but staying engaged and aware so that the counsel you give is going to be consistent with the needs that exist? I start from a perspective that's not very I'll, I'll call it professional or, or, or job related. Um, you have to surround yourself with people to keep it real, right? And, and we can talk uh, corporate executive XYZ all day, um, but when it's you and your friends, you need to have people that are gonna you know, keep you grounded, right? And I'm blessed to have friends that keep me well grounded in, in the realities and they, they make sure that I'm not taking myself too seriously. Um, and, and I value that, right? I, I appreciate that it, it creates safe spaces to, to have the conversations on Fridays that sometimes we need to have on Fridays when, when you know, when, when work has been a long week. Um, so I, I start there and, and say, you know, 
the people that you surround yourself with have to um, appreciate you for who you are. You have to appreciate them for who they are. Um, and, and they just have to be a, a trusting safe space that affirms you in all the areas where you need affirmation. Um, and they need to, uh, to give you as much as you give them, right? So I, I think the people that you surround yourself with, um, you know, your friends and your family are, are really important. What I would say is in staying grounded, you know, I, I just, I try to be a sponge. I try to always approach conversations for what can I listen and what can I learn? Um, because it's, it's very easy and, and at a company, you know, if I look at the majority of the product categories, we're number one or number two, right? And so everyone's always trying to be where we're at. Um, and so it's easy to kind of, on one hand, sit back on your laurels and say, well, we've got this figured out. But when you know that there are constantly people, you know, barking at your ankles, waiting for you to slip up, um, that's a different kind of pressure, right? Um, and, you know, frankly, that's the pressure that you all, you know, said or unsaid that, that that's, that's the reality of being black. In America, right, and in a corporate role, um, there there is the pressure not just to succeed for yourself, but to succeed for people that um, look like you, because there are people who all do wonder whether you deserve to be in the spot that you are in. So, I guess to answer your question, Charles, is is I just try to stay grounded, stay focused forward, to learn from my mistakes as much as I learn from my successes and to be the type of person that people feel good giving feedback to good feedback or the critical feedback um, and i think that they're you know leaders the personality that you have as a leader whether you can have that transparent conversation um, with anyone in the company and that's just something i strive to do right um, to, to to be humble and and to, to know what i don't know um, but to, to surround myself with people that, that know it a little bit better um, and just to be humble. Yeah, that's fantastic, Damon. Wish we had more of that, for sure. Tell me, uh, in your perspective, or from your perception, I should say, um, bringing along the next generation. Uh, I know you're engaged in a lot of different things, too numerous to list here. But as you are looking ahead, you know, I think part of a legacy is always wanting to bring along others on the path. What steps are you taking to do that? What would you recommend for others who are perhaps thinking of ways that they can do that? What approach are you taking? You know, from a leadership standpoint, um, when I think about the individuals that I mentor, is I made certain choices to build my life and my career based on um, the way I thought and the way people told me it needed to be done. And there are certain universal truths that I think remain there, you know, working hard, being a person of your word, all of those things. But I also recognize that for future generations, um, not everyone's going to want to stay with the company for 24 years. Uh, not everyone wants to, to, to grow their career in as linear a fashion as I did. So I always try to make sure that I communicate the why behind the decisions that I make so that people don't say, I need to do um, what Damon did um, in the way that he did it, but they understand how they can go about delivering uh, on, on what they want with a good recognition of the pros, the cons, and the trade-offs that are involved, right? Um, and so, um, you know, I, I've spent all 24 years um, of my time at Proctor 
in a communications-based role. Um, there are some advantages to that, but but I often tell people I said is you know I made a choice very early because I was very clear on what I wanted to do. Um, if you're not that clear, don't don't follow that path. You may want to try out different companies, different geographies, different skill sets, right? But go into each of them with that same learning mode, right? So my path doesn't have to be your path, but you need to be able to learn from each of these experiences. You need to recognize who are the leaders in your field, both those that have leadership from a positional point and those who have leadership from a thought leadership standpoint. I mean, leadership looks very different, right? And so the more that we um, understand that, um, particularly in a world where, frankly, how cultures lead differently, right? Um, and, 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 you know, with being in a global company, it was, I was very challenged to work in, in Asia for a number of years because um, it's a very quiet um, leadership style. People are put their head down, do what they got to do. They're not going to stand up and be the loudest one, the first one to talk, the last one to get the last word. And if you assume that that is what leadership looks like, you're going to miss out on lots of great opportunities. And frankly, you're going to miss out on a lot of great talent. So understanding people and appreciating them for who they are, um, and, but also appreciating yourself for who you are, knowing yourself really, really well. What are the kind of environments that you want to work in with the types of projects that you are your best at? Um, knowing yourself and being able to articulate that helps you uh, and helps people around you set yourself up for success. So for me, uh, you know, I, I think journaling um, is, is powerful, but whatever your method of self-reflection is, I find that to be an incredibly constructive tool in creating you know, the future of the life that you want to lead. And, and, and those things apply equally in your, your personal relationships as well as your professional relationships. Um, so th that's the advice that I give. I, you know, I, I don't um, pur pur you know, purport to have a, a magic book or a set of magic tips, but reflect, learn from the successes and the failures, um, and don't be afraid to ask for help along the way. Yeah. Well, that's a very evolved view. I'm going to applaud that. So I think you should run with that one and hold on to it. I did make a note, though, of something that I think is very useful here. Earlier on, you said that when you were a kid that you always asked why. Now you're providing the why as a matter of function when you're dealing with other people. So that's your circle there. It's not only being able to prepare yourself by asking why so you have the answers, but anticipating that everyone else deserves answers too and being in a position to provide them. Is that fair? I think that's very fair. And, and, and what I would say is you never know what the need or what the opportunity may be. And sometimes we are limited in our views based on what we know and what we see. Um, I think back because, um, you know, going to school, I originally wanted to go to film school. I wanted to, to make movies and, and, and make documentaries and things of that nature. And, you know, my dad was like, you're not going to New York and go to film school and what you gonna do, you gonna make some money on that one? Like you go, go find yourself a real job, right? Um, but, but I use that and, you know, I still am a little salty that I, ne I never went to film school, but it, it was about not defining your gifts or your objectives on other people's terms. What is the work that you wanna do? What is the impact that you wanna have and learning how to share that um, so that people can open your mind to opportunities that you may not know exist. You know, within PG, you know, I had have had four or five jobs that did not exist before I was there because people recognized 
the skills that I had and the business opportunity, right? But if I had only defined my aspirations in terms of what well, I want job X or position Y, then that is probably where they would have drawn me to versus describing the types of experiences that I wanted to have and the types of contributions that I wanted to make, then you can always find um, the, the better third way that is not, you know, A or B, um, but it's going to be option C, D or E. Um, but, but don't, don't limit yourself by saying, this is the job. This is the, the singular experience. Go deeper, be much more qualitative. Uh, and like you said, really understand the why and be able to articulate that because you will, you will find yourself, um, you know, more aware of the opportunities that are fundamentally right for you. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, Damien, I'm going to close out here with a couple of questions because I just, you know, in listening to you, it just seems an appropriate two-part question to ask. And I'm going to ask you to take those in order. The first one is, what keeps Damon Jones up at night? You think about that. And then the second part of it is, what gets Damon Jones up in the morning? Have at it. I'll have at it. Um, I will say I sleep well. Um, uh, <laughs> good for you. I, I sleep well. I don't sleep enough, but I sleep well. What, what worries me, um, um, is am I pushing the right people in the right ways? And am I pushing them hard enough? Right. Um, in a lot of the advocacy work that I do, you know, um, you need to have enough fire and brimstone to, to get people to move with urgency, but not too much that they tune out. Right. Um, when you talk about issues of bias and racism, for example, um, you know, nobody wants to be in that conversation. Nobody wants to say the wrong thing to, to be perceived in that. But you, you got to kind of call a spade a spade when something is what it is. So how do you arc that conversations in a way that we are being uh, assertive or aggressive enough in the areas that we need to be, but doing so in a way that people want to be on the journey with us? Um, um, and they feel um, supported and heard along the way. That's what keeps me up enough, uh, at night to know if I'm doing enough of that and in the right ways. Mm. What gets me up in the morning, other than um, my three-year-old beagle, um, who <laughs> reminds me when it is time, um, it is just knowing that I can help um, someone um, in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a small way but just to be of service, right? Um, you know, I, I, I think when you can, you know, when you take away all the big accomplishments in the films and the, and the big things like that, when you can help give people um, perspective that makes them better and you can have a multiplier effect on the work that they do and how they do it, that's what drives me um, yeah. because Yes, I can go make my projects look really well, right? But if I can help someone else and if I can help 10, 20 other people understand how they can take their talents, their positions of influence and privilege, and if they can make a difference, then, I, then, then there, there's an amazing multiplier effect, right? And so I'm always thinking about the systemic effect that we could have. And I recognize that, you know, I'm in a position where people are looking at what I'm doing. So I take those choices and those opportunities very seriously and very deliberately mm. because I know people are watching. And I think when they see an example of work done well with impact, um, it will have lasting effects. So that's what, what drives me to, to, to just push uh, as hard as I push. Beautiful. 
So, Damon, if there is one thing that I haven't addressed in this freewheeling conversation we've had, which I've terrifically enjoyed, that you'd like to leave with our audience, is there anything? You know, I, I just, I think we are all uh, members of a, of a beautiful human race. And I don't want to get overly philosophical, um, but there is so much that we share in common. Um, and in a world where um, there are lots of labels, there is a ton of divisiveness. I really just want people to see the elements of good that are in each other um, and to find that common ground and to spend as much time on the things that we see the world in the same ways as, as much as we see the, the things that, that we look at differently, right? And whether mm-hmm. you are doing something for a black child or a white child or an Asian child differently, you're a parent who wants the best for your child, right? There's tremendous beauty in that alone, right? And so finding those those perspectives and those positions of common ground with one another, I just think is um, is a really powerful um, and wonderful opportunity that we have. And I just wish people would spend more time in that space, not ignoring the, the differences and the, and the issues and the challenges, um, but let's just start from, from what we can uh, agree on and from there work through those differences versus starting with um, the labels that um, we allow the world to put on us um, differently. So that's that's my closing thought. I wouldn't expect anything less from Damon Jones. You are awesome. I have enjoyed this conversation. I want to thank you so much for taking time for your day. I know how busy you are. I am a fan, but I'm also someone who recognizes in you that there is hope for this profession that we're in. I've been at it a long time. Sometimes I feel like I started in the Stone Ages. But when I see the trajectory of what you and others are doing, it gives me hope for where we can go collectively. And I want to thank you for that work. I want to encourage you to continue that work. And know that here in good old Los Angeles, California, you will always have a fan. And I will always be watching to see what you do next because it always inspires me. Thank you very much. I appreciate the time today, Charles. Thank you.